A word of caution. This episode features depictions of murder that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A man from Fayetteville gets a ride from a co-worker and is never seen again until a religious awakening with a murderer brings the secrets to light. Another young man from Florida takes a job out of state while he figures out his next move. But then he abruptly exits his truck while riding with co-workers he doesn't know very well in North Carolina in the early hours of the morning and is never seen again. And a young woman from North Carolina heads to California to attend her dream college, but goes missing early one morning while exercising on the Golden Gate Bridge. Her family is determined to learn what happened to their daughter. We'll also bring you updates on an elderly woman who went missing from Charlotte in December of this past year, and a Jane Doe who was found in Florida in 1995 who might have ties to South Carolina. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years, from murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, Some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. In August 2014, a 28-year-old man named James Allen Chambers III went missing from his home in Fayetteville, North Carolina. At the time, he was working as a civilian construction worker on the Army base at Fort Bragg. His former girlfriend told investigators he had left with a friend named Howard Ashelman. Supposedly, Howard was going to drive James to a weekend lifeguard job at a lake outside of town. But when he never returned, his family grew worried and reported him missing. The following information was shared by staff writers Jack Bowden and Paul Wolverton with the Fayetteville Observer. Investigators immediately suspected Howard Ashelman was involved in James's disappearance, but didn't have enough evidence that he knew where James was. With no sign of James or proof that he had come to harm, the case went cold. But Howard later moved to Florida, got married, and began studies at a Bible college. With the guilt weighing on him, he told his wife that he had murdered James and disposed of his body. Over several different conversations, which his wife recorded at least once, he gave more details. She then shared the information with police in Florida. They interviewed him, but did not arrest him. He retained a public defender from Cumberland County and began negotiating with Fayetteville law enforcement to plead guilty and surrender in January of 2017. But the investigation hit a snag. Law enforcement officers said they were still collecting evidence and were not ready to arrest Howard. They didn't want to jeopardize their case. Howard was expected to surrender later that year, but the negotiation stalled. He was finally arrested in February 2018 and charged with robbery and murder. Howard Ashelman claimed he and James Chambers had a contentious relationship, and they had gotten into an argument on August 15, 2014. Howard said he stopped the truck, took a gun from the truck bed, and fired into the cab. He said he only meant to scare James, but the bullet struck and killed him instead. Howard confessed to a local drug dealer later that night 
that he had money from a dead man. Authorities later found that dealer and corroborated those statements. During his confession, he said he burned and buried James's body in Cumberland County and then grew paranoid it would be found in the Wade area of the county. So he dug up James's remains, dismembered them, put them in plastic garbage bags, drove to a bridge over a waterway, and dropped them over the side into the Cape Fear River. He then took his truck to a salvage yard and had it crushed. Eight days after his arrest, Howard Ashelman pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to at least 15 years, six months, but no more than 19 years, eight months in prison. He is currently serving his sentence at the Columbus Correctional Institution in Whiteville. As part of his plea, he agreed to show investigators where he disposed of James's body. He said he knows it was a bridge in a remote area, but can't remember exactly where. A recent episode of Dateline titled The Bridge shared details of the case and the search for James. He still has not been found. Next, I want to talk about Cole Thomas. On November 25, 2016, Cole went missing from a work crew he was traveling with in Benson, North Carolina. The circumstances under which he went missing are suspicious, and his family is still unfortunately searching for answers amidst the changing stories they've been told about their son. Christopher Cole Thomas, who goes by the name Cole, was originally from Live Oak, Florida. His dad, Chris, told the News & Observer that Cole was an A student in high school who finished his associate's degree before graduating. He received a scholarship to study sports medicine at the University of Florida and was missing only a few credits for his bachelor's degree four years later when he left to take some time off. He wasn't sure what he wanted to focus on for a career. His dad said he took a job working as an electrical apprentice in Minnesota. On the morning he went missing, he was traveling with two co-workers, Julian Vallis Jr. and Jeremy Carpenter, on the way back from that job. Supposedly, one of the co-workers lived in Durham, so they were going to stop at his home to spend the night. In the early morning hours of November 25th, the group got off Interstate 40 and stopped in the town of Benson. There, the two co-workers said Cole pulled into a neighborhood, stopped his car, and got out and ran away. Around 3 a.m., the Benson police received the report of a missing person. No one in the car had any reason to stop in Benson. In fact, according to an article written by the News & Observer columnist Josh Schaefer, the car stopped at the corner of North Elm and East Morgan Streets, which is about seven blocks from the interstate. It's the middle of the night, you might think. Maybe they needed to stop for gas, snacks, or the restroom. Well, the place the car stopped wasn't near any convenience stores. When his father, Chris, learned of Cole's mysterious disappearance, he drove straight to Benson from his home in Florida. He had last heard from Cole the day before he went missing, on Thanksgiving, with a simple text that didn't seem out of the ordinary. It didn't take long before investigators grew suspicious of Cole's co-workers' stories. It didn't make sense that Cole would have left his vehicle and just disappeared in the area he went missing. More than a year after Cole's disappearance, Julian Vallis Jr. of Dudley, North Carolina, and Jeremy Carpenter of Taylor Falls, Minnesota, were arrested along with Anthony James and Rodolfo Leon Jr., both of Mount Olive, North Carolina. The four men were charged with felony concealment of a death, with Anthony James, Jeremy Carpenter, and Julian Vallas also charged with obstruction of justice. 
At the time of the men's arrests, Anthony James's attorney told local news outlets his client was the least involved in the disappearance of Mr. Thomas. That same news outlet, CBS 17, reported the following details. The prosecutor at the time said that Cole, Julian Vallez, and Jeremy Carpenter had devised a plan to drive from Minnesota to North Carolina to purchase a large amount of methamphetamine. Anthony James had a connection with Rudolfo de Leon. The three men in Cole's truck met with Rudolfo and planned to purchase three ounces of the drug. After obtaining the meth, they were going to go back to Minnesota when they drove by a sheriff's deputy in Mount Olive. At that point, Cole became paranoid and eventually the drugs were thrown out the window of his truck. He left the vehicle shortly thereafter. This is when numerous stories were shared by the co-defendants. Anthony James said he saw one of the co-defendants call Rodolfo de Leon, then someone else beat Cole with a bat, and he later heard gunshots. He told police he had lied about those details at a different time. Investigators had information that Cole's disappearance was related to a drug deal gone wrong. They hoped the four men would turn state's evidence against one another and help Cole's family find him. After serving eight months in prison, a North Carolina Superior Court made the decision to reduce the bonds of Jeremy Carpenter and Anthony James. Jeremy's bond was reduced and he was allowed to move out of state to Alabama to stay with a relative. Anthony's bond was reduced and he was released to a relative's home in Sampson County. The bonds for Julian Vallez and Rodolfo de Leon were reduced a few months later and they were also released. All charges against the four men were officially dropped in 2019. At the time, the Johnston County District Attorney made the following statement. The investigation into the death of Cole Thomas is ongoing. The SBI continues to follow up on all the new information. After a thorough review of the case as it stands today, I made the decision to dismiss the current charges in order to avoid compromising any potential future homicide prosecutions. A 2019 article by Rick Curl that ran in the Daily Record from Dunn, North Carolina, featured statements made by a private investigator that Cole Thomas's family hired. That investigator, a man named David Marshburn, said he believes he knows what happened the morning Cole went missing, and he's working to gather enough evidence to bring the killers to justice. He said he's certain two of the men initially arrested were responsible for the murder of Cole, and the other two were set up to take the fall. David Marshburn addressed the press at a memorial service held in Benson. He said he thinks Rodolfo de Leon and Julian Vallez were in the vehicle with Cole when he participated in the interstate drug deal. Cole was the driver, and Julian had brought money from Minnesota, where the men had been working, to buy drugs. A bag of meth was transported from a residence in Mount Olive with the intention of selling it. But Cole grew fearful of being caught and threw the drugs out the window of the truck. The investigator also said Cole's cell phone had been tracked to several different locations before ending up in Mount Olive. He said the main reason investigators and law enforcement are having a hard time getting charges to stick in the case is because the men are all afraid of the consequences of their actions. David Marshburn also said, The dad Chris Thomas wants them to know, of the four, one of those four did come forward and spilled the beans and told us everything. 
One of them still fails to tell us anything, still denies, denies, denies. But the slip-up was, he basically did tell us in an indirect way what happened, and he's still keeping quiet. At the time he went missing, Cole Thomas was described as a white male standing around 6 feet 1 inch tall, weighing 230 pounds. He has blondish brown hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a red t-shirt, black pants, and a black Carhartt jacket. His family states they will not give up their search until they are able to bring Cole home. Anyone with information on the whereabouts of Cole Thomas is asked to call the Benson, North Carolina Police Department at 919-894-2091 or the Q Center for Missing Persons at 910-343-1131. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, but they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wowwomenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. It's winter time. I don't know about you, but my skin is always in desperate need of moisture during this time of year, and, well, all the other months of the year, too but I don't like to experiment with a lot of different products at high price points if they won't work for me. Enter the products from SkinX Erin. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil, and I was hooked from the first drop. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalane Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leaves the skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. And now, let's get back to the show. On September 30th, 2020, a 19-year-old young woman named Sydney West disappeared from an area near the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. For her parents, who were living across the country in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the whole experience has been like a nightmare they can't wake up from. 
When I first heard about Sydney's case, it reminded me of one I've covered before. Kristen Modafferi was also a college student from North Carolina who enrolled in a summer photography class at UC Berkeley in 2001. She went missing in June of that year, and her parents were living here in Charlotte when they discovered she went missing. Her case has never been solved, and you can listen to it on episode 12, North Carolina Cases Featured on Unsolved Mysteries. But back to Sydney's story. Sydney West grew up with her family, which included her parents and her younger sister, near the San Francisco area, but they moved to Chapel Hill while she was in high school. She learned how to play the piano at a young age and eventually began writing her own music and lyrics, performing at open mic nights in Carborough while in high school. She loved art, played volleyball, and was very athletic. She finished up school in North Carolina and was excited to be accepted into UC Berkeley. But the summer before she was to start college, she suffered a concussion in an accident at a lake outside of Asheville where her family was vacationing. She was still having pain, dizziness, and other symptoms after they returned home that summer. Her parents, Jay and Kimberly, said they noticed a change in their daughter's personality, and she also began having mood swings. When her parents went to move her into the dorms at UC Berkeley that fall, it was the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Sydney was disheartened to learn that none of her classes would be held in person, and spending so much time on her computer during remote learning while still battling symptoms from her concussion led her to the realization that she wanted to defer her enrollment for at least a year. Her parents told the investigation discovery show disappeared that their daughter was taking time to figure out her next steps. Because they had so many family friends in California, she stayed with a few different people before going to the home of friends in the nearby town of Livermore. On the night of September 29th, Jay West said he had a lengthy phone call with his daughter. She was spending the night at a hotel in San Francisco. She was trying to decide if she wanted to stay in California, come back to North Carolina for a bit, or find a job to get her through before heading back to school the next fall under better circumstances. She felt like she had let herself down, and he told her that was not the case, and that they would help her in any way possible. He hung up the phone, fully expecting to talk to her again the next day. The morning of September 30th, Sydney checked out of the hotel and ordered an Uber around 6.30 in the morning. It took her to Chrissy Field, a popular spot in the area if you want to walk along the Golden Gate Bridge. The rideshare driver cooperated with the police after her disappearance and said she did not appear to be distraught during the ride. Her family was in the habit of checking Sydney's location each day to make sure she was okay since she was living across the country from them. When her dad woke up the morning of September 30th, he checked her location and could not find her anywhere. He was able to find the receipt showing that he had taken the Uber to Chrissy Field, so he phoned his brother, who still lived in the area, and asked him to go to the park and look for Sydney. He then joined his brother in San Francisco and they searched for Sydney on foot until reporting her missing to the police at the end of the day. Sydney's parents filed a missing persons report for their daughter in Orange County, North Carolina on October 1, 2020, because that's where her permanent residence was. It was then immediately transmitted to the proper authorities in San Francisco and a report was filed there as well. The area where Sydney was last seen, Chrissy Field, has its own police force, the Golden Gate Bridge Patrol. Chrissy Field is on federal land. 
During a search, police found Sydney's backpack near the Golden Gate Bridge. It contained a set of clothes, some of her artwork, journals, and colored pencils. Her phone was not with the backpack. While looking at security videos from the Golden Gate Bridge, the San Francisco Police Department found video of someone who looked like Sydney. So they initially believed she had jumped from the bridge and informed her parents of their theory. Jumps from the Golden Gate Bridge have a 98% fatality rate. The Golden Gate Bridge Patrol has not released the video footage to the media. Eventually, Sydney's dad and uncle were allowed to view the video. They could see Sydney walking on a part of the bridge close to the city with her phone in her hand. Then she turned around, having put her backpack down, and looked like she was going for a run across the bridge. They said it was dark and very foggy. There was no footage of her jumping off the bridge. Plus, they said there were a lot of people on the bridge that morning walking, plus the cars driving by while she was there. And her dad thinks if she had climbed on the railing of the bridge to jump over, someone would have seen it. The police knew she had been suffering from anxiety and depression, so they believed she had been at risk for suicide. The West family hired Scott Dudek, a private investigator in the San Francisco area. He also does not think Sydney jumped off the bridge. He pointed out that the area of the bridge was very foggy on the morning Sydney was there, which may be why there isn't video of her leaving the park area or exiting the bridge. The media outlet SF Gate reported that the morning of September 30, 2020, there was significant smoke from the area wildfires on the San Francisco Bay that day, obscuring the video footage. Sydney's bank accounts, which didn't have a lot of money in them when she disappeared, have not been accessed. Her phone has also never been located. On the day she went missing, Sydney was wearing a light teal hoodie, tropical print van sneakers, and dark leggings. Her hair was in a bun on the top of her head. She is 5 feet 10 inches tall and weighs around 130 pounds. She has blue eyes and light brown hair. Anyone with information is asked to contact Private Investigator Scott Dudek at 925-705-8328 or dudek.associates at gmail.com. The spelling of the last name is D-U-D-E-K. You can learn more about this case at the website findsydneywest.com, and it's Sydney with a Y. Before we close today, I want to add a few additional items that may have been in the North and South Carolina news recently. First, on December 9th of last year, 79-year-old Nancy Brown was visiting family in Charlotte from New York City when she went missing from their home. Officials quickly issued a missing and endangered alert because Nancy suffered cognitive impairment and may have been trying to get back home to New York when she went missing. When she left the home, she was wearing a teal coat, a white fedora-style hat, black sneakers, and was carrying a black rolling suitcase. On January 15th of this year, local authorities in Charlotte announced they believed they had found Nancy Brown's body during a North Charlotte dive recovery. Police said her body was found in a creek along West Sugar Creek Road. Authorities are awaiting an official confirmation and cause of death for the woman believed to be Nancy. There is also still an unidentified Jane Doe from Florida that may have ties to the Carolinas. On October 7, 1995, a woman's body was pulled from the water off Pine Island, Florida, three days after Hurricane Opal 
a Category 4 storm, made landfall off the Gulf of Mexico. The hurricane caused significant beach erosion after coastal flooding in Lee County, according to an article that ran in the news press. The body was tucked into a sleeping bag and then placed into a sail bag and, according to that newspaper article, was weighed down by a car battery. Investigators estimated the woman, who had been dead 20 to 25 days prior to being found, was in her late 30s or early 40s, about 5 feet 2 inches in height, with dark blonde hair with a reddish tint. She was wearing a maroon V-neck pullover hospital gown with the words Charleston SC VA Hospital on the back of it. She was wearing a white metal stainless steel Timex watch on her left wrist that had red stripes on the full length of the watch band. The woman was wearing a yellow metal ring with a two millimeter ivory colored stone and a lightweight yellow metal bracelet. An examination of her skeletal remains determined that during life, this woman had a left temporal craniotomy. It appeared she had not given birth. There was a fracture of the right leg that was surgically repaired with two orthopedic screws, fracture of right arm, and a fracture of the left clavicle. The medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death. The Southwest Florida Crime Stoppers, part of the Lee County Sheriff's Office, said in a press release that there were no matches with any Charleston area hospital, nor any VA medical facilities. While there is a Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Charleston, Virginia, its name was changed to the Ralph H. Johnson VA Medical Center in 1991, four years after the body was found. Forensic anthropologists have created an electronic rendering of what the woman may have looked like when she went into the water. I'll post that on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Anyone with information about the unidentified woman found in Florida should contact the Lee County Sheriff's Office at 239-477-1000. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.